Welcome to another episode of Exhale, a podcast series where we explore topics on spirometry and respiratory care. Your host is Mark Russell, Marketing Communications Manager and Troy Pridgen, Executive Vice President of Sales and Operations for Vitalograph North America, a global leader in respiratory diagnostics. Today, we interview John Lynn. He's the founder and chief editor of Healthcare IT Today. He has a different perspective on healthcare technology dealing with healthcare IT, specifically electronic health records. Hi, John. Welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me. Excited for the discussion. Please give us a little bit about your background on yourself, education experience, and what's your current responsibilities? Yeah, so I'm a tech guy by background. I'm literally at tech guy on Twitter, although each day I, I kind of lose some of my tech skills, even though that's my education, that's my background. That's where it all started. Uh, but yeah, you know, so I essentially got hired at UNLV to implement their electronic medical record. And so, you know, as a tech guy, I got hired and poured into healthcare. In fact, my first EHR training the person that was training wasn't teaching me software. I already saw, oh, all the fields are yellow. Those are required fields. Instead, she was saying, here's what a CPT code is. <laughs> and I just had no clue about healthcare, but I understood the technology. So that was kind of my baptism by fire into healthcare. And, you know, one weekend I was bored. And uh, what do tech guys do on the weekend? I rolled out a website about electronic medical record. The original site was called EMR and HIPAA 16 years ago, and uh, I rolled that out. And anyway, long story short, Obama gave $36 billion of stimulus money to EHR, quit the day job about 12 years ago, and just been full-time with Healthcare Scene as my company today, which includes two communities, a health IT community at Healthcare IT Today, and then we also have a healthcare marketing community now at hitnick.com. Excellent. Uh, John, what are the top electronic medical record implementation challenges that you see and, and how do you work to overcome them? Yeah, so I, when I look at EHRs or EMRs, depending on who it is, you know, I think those, we use those synonymously now. You know, when I look at it, I think the biggest challenge that everyone faces is there's way too much regulation. And of course, healthcare is a regulated industry in general. But when you look at the regulation requirements for EHR, and then you layer on top of that the reimbursement requirements as far as the documentation that's required to get paid. All of that makes EHRs tough. So everyone always comes with like, I wish Apple would create their own EHR. And I hear that and I'm like, is that even possible? Like, is the problem that they implemented it poorly? And let me be fair, EHR vendors could do better than they're doing today and as far as usability and some of those things. But let's say Apple or Google or you know, Amazon or whoever gets into that and they look at it. My question has always been, can you implement an EHR that a doctor loves when there's so many regulations and so many reimbursement requirements. And so when I look at it and I, you know, I hear doctors say, I hate the EHR, I always ask them the question, do you hate the EHR or do you hate the regulation and reimbursement requirements that the EHR reflects because it turns out doctors like to get paid. And so you know, that I think is the biggest challenge that we have today is that these EHR vendors were created as big billing engines that's what their intent was. Their intent wasn't, I want to provide better patient care and I want to facilitate the doctor to be able to provide that care in a more efficient manner. No, they were built to, I want to get paid easier, better, et cetera. And I want to meet regulations, meaningful use requirements, 
which became macro MIPS. So when I look at the challenges, it's all of the burdensome regulations and reimbursement requirements that the doctor definitely hates and are reflected in the EMR. How is implementation coming along in this country? I know it's been a number of years and there's been deadlines set and, and then missed and then deadlines more. Where do we stand right now? Yeah, I mean, the good news is that $36 billion of stimulus money got us where we have adopted EHR. I mean, everyone has either decided I'm going to adopt or I'm not going to adopt for whatever reason. Maybe they're in a rural environment and they really don't have to, right? <laughs> like there's a few edge cases, but for the most part, we're in the mid nineties for hospitals easy as far as adoption of EHR. So there's only a few stragglers that literally just can't for whatever reason. So on the hospital side, we're near, you know, near hundred percent adoption as far as anyone that's going to adopt. On the ambulatory side of things, it's a little further behind. You know, I think it's closer to around 80% last numbers that I've seen. So somewhere in that neighborhood, 80, it might even be getting closer to 90 now. And But there are some on the ambulatory side where they have more autonomy. They don't, they can use paper charts. They're like, fine, I just won't take Medicare. So, you know, if I don't take Medicare, you can't penalize me, which is how they drove much of the initial adoption. So the reality is we're at a point where we're at near full adoption of EMR and EHR in both the hospital ambulatory space. Post-acute care is a little bit further behind uh, since they didn't benefit from the stimulus money as much. Mental health is a little further behind as well. You know, in the pure clinical ambulatory hospital side, it's near adoption. Now, the real challenge is, okay, it was adopted, and in many cases, it was slapped in so quickly because they were chasing the stimulus money that now our question is, how, how are we going to optimize this? And the reality is that many doctors don't want to take the time to optimize it. You can't just roll out an EHR and use it out of the box the way you can your iPhone. It takes some customization. It takes some personalization to make it hum at the efficiency that you want. There's been a lot of studies that show that if you spend the time to optimize it, you increase your satisfaction with the EHR dramatically. And there's a lot of people that are like, I just don't want to do that. And so they just suffer through. It's, it's an unfortunate situation. But to be fair, there is a lot of optimization and personalization and customization that could still be done and will be going for the next decade. We've certainly seen that in our careers, just with the integration, the EHR piece with medical devices. It's a new technology that has come on the scene very, very quickly. Are you finding that people are somewhat resistant? Do they still have kind of a phobia of working with it, or have they pretty much embraced it at this point? With EHR, they really haven't had a choice. The, the, <laughs> the government stimulus money was louder than any of their voices, and they had to push it in. But the reality is no one likes change, right? <laughs> like, uh, I, mean, I don't think any of us like change, right? We, we're, we're creatures of habit for the most part. And so when you introduce some new technology that's going to change that habit, it's scary. And in some cases, many people have said, hey, I really hate this piece of software or this technology that I'm using, but at least I know that devil, right? Like it's the devil I know. I know the intricacies, I know where it falls short, I know how to work around it, et cetera. So I think that's what we see a lot in the organizations is that people are just resistant to change in general. And so even something that may improve their lives, they're scared of it. And, and they're scared for a lot of different reasons. Some of it is they're scared for their work life, right? Like introduce something like AI and automation to a workflow. 
a lot of people, when you, they hear that, they're like, wait, so is my job in jeopardy? And what is going to mean for my job? And am I going to enjoy my job? The good news is we have seen a bit of a shift thanks to the workforce issues that kind of have presented themselves because of all the burnout that's happening, because of COVID, because of other pressures, because of the ability to work remotely, et cetera. Now, many people are doing three and four people's jobs. And so before they were like, oh, are you going to take my job? Now they're like, okay, it's not so much that you're going to take my job. It's you're going to take one of the other jobs I'm doing because we can't hire someone because no one wants to fill that position. And so there has been a, maybe more acceptance of this automation and this you know opportunity to use technology to cover some of the services I'm doing that previously people would be very afraid of that technology. Now they're more accepting because they realize that they need to be more efficient. And they also realize that that automation is going to take away the mundane stuff that the doctors don't want to do, that the front desk staff don't want to do. And if they can do that, then that's a big win so that they can, you know, they are like, this is a common phrase, they want to operate at the top of their license. Like they don't want to do data entry of the device that they just did to measure your blood pressure. Like who in the world wants to do that? Of course, we want an interface that's going to automate that information to automatically enter in the EHR which is, by the way, more efficient and more accurate and be you know, better for everyone involved. So they're, they're more accepting of those automations than they were previously because of the pressures they're feeling around burnout, et cetera. Is training still a time-consuming problem? I know that with so many different platforms out there, we're here in Kansas City and we have Cerner. Are they working together? Some of these EHRs are very similar and can be cross-trained with a lot of different people. Yeah, you would think, but not really. <laughs> Unfortunately, like when you learn one EHR, you've learned one EHR. I mean, there's some, you know, parallels. And if you know technology, you can learn it easier for sure. But the reality is the training has become an issue because of the staff loss. So mm -hmm. if I'm bringing in staff more regularly because I haven't retained them because many people decided to move because they could. And, you know, all of these pressures with staff or some doctors that are just saying, hey, I'm done with medicine. I'm burnt out. I'm going to go do something else. When that happens, you have this churn of staff and that's where the training becomes an issue. I mean, the reality for most is, you know, for especially in the EHR world, they're trained. They know how to use it if they've been there for a while. And so, uh, you know, really the problem now is customizing the experience for that person. There's all sorts of organizations that have these teams that, you know, they're kind of like these SWAT teams that come into a, a certain department or even to a, a clinic and they go in there and say, how are you using the EHR? And they're learning, they're learning how they're using it. And they're saying, well, did you know about this? Or, oh, why are you doing that? Let me customize that and save you some time. So I'd say the majority of the efforts are around customization now for the end users and knowing how they're using it and how can we improve it for them versus training. But with the only caveat being that we're having a lot of staff turnover and when there's staff turnover uh, you got to retrain them because even within the same EHR you may have implemented templates and someone else didn't implement templates you may have order sets that are different than someone else's order sets you may have voice recognition someone else doesn't and so even within the same EHR you have to go through a training process if there's turnover and that's a big problem people have to deal with Hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I hear the word customization coming up a lot. And it really sounds like you need a kind of a bespoke you know, solution that's that's appropriate for your environment. 
I wanted to ask, with all of the medical devices out there currently, and, and all of them are trying to, to become EHR compliant, what challenges does that present for you to kind of reconcile so many uh, different companies, different brands? Yeah, I mean, when you look at an EHR vendor, you're right. There's been an explosion of medical devices, some FDA cleared, some consumer, some, you know, it's all over the place, right? You know, IoT or IOMT and Internet of Medical Things, right, is exploding. And what's considered a medical device is changing as well. You, you probably didn't think before that there was a medical device, uh, you know, as far as even, you know, some UV system that's tracking. Well, now it's connected and it's tracking safety protocols, et cetera, right? So I would say the challenge is that there, the breadth of medical devices has exploded and what's connected and what can be connected has exploded. And then the other problem is that explosion makes it so that it's not evenly distributed. Some of the new devices are Wi-Fi enabled or can be connected that way. I mean, there's an entire companies that created black boxes underneath the hospital bed to connect these medical devices that weren't originally intended to be connected. And so you have this, you know, kind of old devices, new devices, and it, it becomes a challenge. I think the good news is, you know, if you use something like HL7, then you know, you're fine. Every EHR vendor can do HL7, and that's a pretty mature standard that can share that data. Now, is it ideal? If you're building a new device, that's a problem, right? <laughs> like, I mean, you, you want to do something that's, you know, more API-based, right? And we've seen the evolution of Fire going that direction as well, right? And, and they have smart on Fire applications to be able to do it. So I think, you know, what's interesting is everyone wants to connect the medical devices. Yeah, the question is, how do we do it? And, you know, and what's the right pathway forward? And how do I support the legacy that we've been doing with HL7 or EDT or other standards that it might have been doing? And where do I need to move to Fire? And, you know, I mean, most healthcare organizations have an integration engine as well. And so the, are they going to do it with the integration engine integrated to the medical device or am I going to go straight to the EHR? And so the problem isn't that you can't do the medical device. You can. The problem is there's 10 options and each vendor wants to do something a little bit different. And so I think exactly. it's more the breadth of options that's more of a challenge than the fact, can I connect it? And I will say one caveat on as far as integrating, if you want to put data into the HR, there's a lot of standards for that. If you want to, you know, like share, like here's the result and whatever, right? If you want to pull some data from the HR, it's great. But if you really want to deeply integrate with the EHR and you want to update a record, you know, around it, then that can be challenging, right? So if you're just pushing a PDF, if you're just pushing a result, we can do that. But if you want to get deep into the heart of the EHR and update that in real time for the doctor, that can be challenging. Sure, I can understand that. A lot of our reports on our spirometers are all uh, PDF and it's we try to make it as simple as possible so that they can integrate. I think that if you try any more, it gets like you said, it gets in the weeds. Is data privacy a problem? And our hospitals and clinics still combating hackers. I know this week I got snagged on internal phishing email and I had to do retraining. What's going on with the hospitals today? I think you know it's interesting. We're talking medical devices. That's probably one of the biggest challenges. Because there's been an explosion of those devices, 
some of those devices aren't being updated. They're not getting the security updates that they need. So they have to do all sorts of like crazy limbo to create special subnets that are off the main network to allow for this old device running on Windows 2000 or something like that <laughs> to be able to, you know, do what they need to do. And, and you look at that and you're like, well, is the EHR going to be hacked? And the answer is probably not, right? Is the, you know, is your Salesforce system going to be hacked? Probably not. But is your medical device going to be hacked? And then through that, they can get access to your EHR. They can get access to your ERP, et cetera. Hackers aren't stupid. You know, the walls on hacking a software directly are pretty hard and they're high. And so what do they do? They do two things. One, they'll go hack the medical device, which will then give them access to your network to be able to, you know, get access there. Or the other problem, as you mentioned, is the phishing attacks. Mm -hmm. You know, it's much easier to compromise someone's credentials. And now I have access to the EHR and no one even knows about it. And so mm -hmm. that's where they're heading. You know, hackers take the path of least resistance. And so if you put up walls enough that, you know, they're like, oh, that, that, that looks like too hard. I'm going to go somewhere else, right? They're like a river. They just run to whatever path is easiest. And the reality today is medical devices and humans. You know, I heard one CIO say that he, he was worried about his 21,000 points of, uh, <laughs> of vulnerability, and he was talking about his 21,000 workers, right? <laughs> like, yeah. that, that's a challenge. How, you know, and you know, interesting enough, you could apply that to devices and connected networks. And, you know, I mean, we, we saw what happened when Kronos had a ransomware, mm -hmm. and it was compromised. They didn't know how to even pay people. And that became a really big issue for these organizations. And so, you know, I think they all have to look at this and, you know, it has to, you know, have to have a plan and a culture of security whenever they adopt, whether it's a medical device, whether it's a new software, whether it's even just training their staff on the security, it's a massive problem. Yeah, I can tell you as a medical manufacturer, you know, we've certainly seen the FDA raise their scrutiny uh, significantly uh, when you're you're putting in for, you know, 510K approval. So right. I, I think you're right on track with that. We understand that you have a podcast of your own. So I was curious if you could tell us a little bit about it and, and kind of what prompted you to create it. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You know, I started blogging uh, 16 years ago and you start with one. And at one point we were up to 15 blogs. They just kind of proliferate as you, you, know, you start one. It's like an addiction, I guess. <laughs> Luckily, I'm down to two now. So we're down to two blogs. But interesting enough, the same thing happened with podcasts. So we actually have three podcasts now on healthcare <laughs> IT today, each with their own unique spin. And, you know, I'd thought about doing a podcast for years, obviously, with blogging for the last 16 years and publishing 15,000 articles. There was always that idea, like, should we do a podcast? Should we do it? And I always resisted it because the cost to create content for the podcast was just expensive. And I, I didn't think the juice was worth the squeeze, if you will, right? Like that it was a lot of work and I'm already doing it in text. Like, why do I need that? But what we've seen is that the social media companies are pushing video in a massive way. And people want to consume video in a massive way on their phone, you know, as they're traveling, as a podcast, as video, et cetera. And so we saw that as an opportunity and COVID really pushed us over the edge, to be quite frank. We'd started one of our podcasts before that, but once COVID hit, we decided to do a hundred interviews in a hundred days, which it probably took more like 200, but we, we ended up doing them and, you know, 75% of them were video. And so once we had that content, I was like, wow, why don't we publish this as a podcast? We should, we already have all 
all the, we've done the hard work, we've recorded the content, so let's push it as a podcast. And so, you know, like I said, it just grows over time. It's a, you know, we're up to three podcasts. I think we're over 400 episodes that we've published across the three different podcasts on healthcare IT today. And so, you know, for me though, it's just amazing to be able to talk to smart people and hear the stories that they experience and that they go through and how they're using technology to improve patient care. That's what I love about it. And that's what I think the people who listen, they love just hearing all the innovation that's happening in healthcare technology. I agree. So have you guys tried any transcription uh, of some of your podcasts and publishing them that way at all? We we just started that here recently. Uh, we partner up with uh, Respiratory Therapy Magazine, and they're starting to uh, publish uh, some of our you know top podcasts as interviews in their publication. Absolutely. We're actually testing it right now. We've done it to a handful of ours, and we want to see whether search engines like having the transcript or don't. We know that readers do, and so I think we will with most of our paid podcasts at least. The, the paid ones will probably do a transcript because it's really nice to have, and it's great for people you know, to be able to read through if they you know, say they're in a meeting or something. They're, they're in a place where they can't listen right, or watch the video. Then you know, it's nice for them to have the transcript there. So we've, I'd say we've done it with about uh, five percent of our podcasts right now but we're definitely evaluating it saying yeah is this good for search engines so that more people can access our content and two we know it's great from a usability perspective so let's make sure it's as easy to access as possible for the users than our community sure well hey do you want to tell our listeners how they access your your podcast what audience you are trying to connect to yeah, absolutely. So the best place to go, you can go to Healthcare Scene is the overarching company at healthcarescene.com. And that links to our health IT community at healthcareittoday.com. And on the right sidebar, you can find the three podcasts. And, you know, you can search for Healthcare IT Today on your favorite podcasting application as well. Uh, you know, on our healthcare marketing side of things, you can go to hitmic.com, H-I-T-M-C.com, which is our healthcare and IT marketing community. There it links to our conference that we do. We do an annual conference with them. It also leads to a lot of content on healthcare B2B marketing. So if you're interested on that, and then of course, you know, just search for John Lynn on LinkedIn. It's easy to find, uh, you know, or, or even on Twitter. If you're on Twitter, I'm at tech guy, super easy to remember and find. So always happy to connect with people and learn more about what they're doing. Well, great, John. Thanks. This has been really enlightening and we appreciate you being on our podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. You've reached the end of another episode of Exhale with Vitalograph. Don't forget to follow us for upcoming new episodes and recommend this podcast to friends and family. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us again on Exhale with Vitalograph.